good. So we're in John chapter 3, and we've been looking at a conversation that uh, Jesus has been having with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, as we remember, is the highest ruling authority in all of Israel, highest political authority in all of Israel, and the third wealthiest man in all of Israel. He's a brother of Josephus, the Jewish historian. Um, he is a remarkable man. He comes to Jesus by night. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the miracles you do unless he, he's from God. And it wasn't a, a man come from God. It was God coming to talk to man. And Nicodemus was standing before God Almighty. And, uh, and, and he, it says that Jesus answered him, even though Nicodemus didn't ask a question in his heart. He had a question that he was afraid to ask. And he said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? Does he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus goes on to say, that's a physical birth. I'm speaking of a spiritual birth. And he goes on to describe the imperative. He says, you must, do not marvel that I say you must be born again. It's an imperative. God declares that to all mankind. You, listen, you must be born again. You don't like the term or it's been adulterated or whatever. However, you've heard the term born again. Based in John chapter 3, now that we have an understanding of it, Jesus declares to all mankind, you must be born again. If that is offensive or it's difficult for you, that's, don't be upset with me. Jesus said you, meaning me too and you as well, must be born again. So he gives the imperative, which we studied two weeks ago, and then how that happens, we studied this idea of a spiritual birth, that the, the seed of God's word hits the soul of man and conceives this new birth, and, and it's this new life that the idea that we were created in God's image. Yesterday, I was with uh, Pastor Marty Richter, um, and we were at a, an internment service, a funeral service for Rose Wheeler, a member of our congregation, who died at 98. And uh, we, Pastor Marty officiated because he was visiting her the last few years of her life as she was in the rest home. And, uh, and Pastor Marty said some words, and, and I, I closed with a couple things that were on my mind as they were sprinkling the ashes in the Garden of Remembrance over at Pierce Brothers in Westlake. And I said, it's interesting, the ashes are going into the garden, and the and Bible says that God gathered the dust of the earth and fashioned man and then breathed his spirit, his ruach, into man. And man was created in his image. Now, that image is what the Apostle Paul would say in Thessalonians is the trichotomy of man, the three-part being, body, soul, and spirit, soma, psyche, and pneuma. Soma is the body, psyche is the mind or the intellect, and the pneuma is the spirit of God. In the fall, in the Garden of Eden, the Spirit of God departed, so man became a dichotomy, a two-part being, and, and, and what re resulted is our flesh took over and started to dictate you know, what we would do. And we became fleshly creatures driven by our desires. And, and so the Lord comes and he says, I'm going to create a, a, new, a new being, you're going to be born again, born of the Spirit. And by receiving Christ and trusting in Christ as your Savior, there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. By trusting in Christ, God's Spirit takes up residence in your life again, and you become exactly what God had always created you to be, a trichotomy, God's Spirit dictating to your intellect what your body would do, and you operate in the context of, of how God, your Creator, my Creator, wants us to live. He speaks to us. We move in accordance with his, his will, to, willing to do of his good pleasure. And so this is the picture that he's been sharing with Nicodemus. And, and, and he says, whosoever, and, and that, that invitation goes out to the world. And he declares, you, you, and if you hear my voice, it's you, must be born again. And, and so here we have this. It all makes sense. It, it aligns to what we're understanding but then in this passage of scripture we're about to read, God gives the reasons why men and women don't respond 
to the God of the universe, giving an invitation to become restored and, and regenerated creatures in Christ, new beings to live in accordance with his will. Why people reject so great a salvation. We're going to see that today in our reading. So let's stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to pick up in uh, John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in Jesus is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And then while you're standing, I want to read, and you don't have to turn there, but it's in 1 John chapter 1. It says, this is the message which we have heard from Jesus and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Jesus and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's the soap of God. He washes us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would allow us to see the scales that remain over our, our eyes. That the sin that easily besets us, as your word declares in John chapter 3, we love the darkness more than you. We're already condemned. You didn't come to condemn us. You came to forgive us. But we don't want to be forgiven because we love the sin. But God, please, we are living in an illusion, a distortion of our senses. And we pray, God, that you would disenchant us from this spell that has been placed upon us, that our eyes would be open and we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. So minister now, Lord, we pray. And to you goes all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I was, I was thinking about this idea of illusion. We're all trapped in an illusion. I love the definition. I pulled it up. It says, an illusion is a distortion of the senses revealing how the brain normally organizes and interprets sensory stimula- uh, stimulation. Though illusions distort reality, they are generally shared by most people. 
Illusions may occur with any of the human senses, but visual illusions, optical illusions, are the most well-known and understood. The emphasis on visual illusions occurs because vision often dominates the other senses. We look and we're just enraptured. Have you ever seen those pictures of celebrities before and after makeup? And I, I got to tell you, you know, growing up as a young boy and seeing some of the pictures of the airbrushed women and you're like, oh man. And then you see them in real life, you're like, oh, what happened? You're trapped in an illusion. Now, a disillusion, to be disillusioned is to be free or deprived of an illusion. It's called the act of disenchanting. You have a spell placed on you. And, and the spell is lifted, and you can see clearly. It's a condition or a fact of being disenchanted. The spell is removed. Uh, I'm going to place a spell on you right now. Let's, let's put it up on the, on the wall. Get ready. Is this a four-legged or a five-legged elephant? How about this one? Is it a young woman or an old lady? <laughs> Both, right. Do you see the young woman? She's got the little eyelash and the tiny little nose and the feather coming up. And do you see the old babushka? The, 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 the young woman's chin is the old woman's nose. Minya zavut babushka. Dobre utra. We could do this all day. All right, we're good with it. Your visual senses can deceive you. And the world is in darkness. Darkness is a haze. It's a deception. You get trapped in it. And, and you tend to come to a place where you believe that the darkness you're embracing somehow is better than the light that God is calling you to. The light has come into the world, but men hated the light because they loved, and the word loved is agape. They give their life for darkness. John uses the word correctly. They give their life for darkness. And you do it in the darkness. You do it in the secret. Come to church every Sunday, and yet you have this secret that nobody knows about. Indulgent, continual. The minute it comes into the light, you're afraid. So you hold on to it. You continue in it. You haven't repented of it. You haven't turned from it. And you love it. You've built your life around it and the secrecy is encompassed so that nobody can find out about it. And you operate in this darkness and you continue. And, and the scripture says in, in, in 1 John that we read earlier that this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, in illusion, with this deception... We lie and we don't practice the truth. We make the, the lie a truth and the truth a lie. We call evil good and good evil and we re rewrite it. it. John has taken time to describe this. And he gives this clear conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Je Nicodemus is far more learned than probably anyone in the room right now. Far wealthier than anyone else in the room, more than likely. If, if, if he isn't, then you're not tithing. I just thought I'd throw that out there. But Nicodemus, the third wealthiest man in all of Israel, and, and you, you see this, 
And he's highly educated, both morally and philosophically. He, he's, he's the political leader and the religious leader. He's a moral man. Yet he, he can't wrap his mind around this. And Jesus is saying, this has nothing to do with the intellect. You already get this. There, this isn't rocket science. You can grasp the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You get all that. This is not, this is not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. You don't, receive, you don't neglect in receiving Christ because you don't understand it. You don't want to. Let's just be honest. Whatever is in your life, you don't want to bring into the light. You don't want anyone else to know. This is your own little secret world that you're holding on to. And, and I want to share with you the reason why you're holding on to it, why you agape, why you love darkness, why you love darkness, the scripture says, rather than light. The author of Hebrews writes about Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 24, it says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had all the trappings and the illusions of the world of, of power, wealth, uh, women, money, luxury, all of that, choosing rather to suffer affliction. And listen, the way of Christ is a way of suffering. The Via Dolorosa, we'll suffer as Christians. We suffer so that others may live. We serve. Christians are stepping stones for others to get to Christ. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. I love that. The Bible is dead center honest. Sin is pleasurable. Can I get an amen? amen. Listen, listen. Nobody has to be told not to drink sulfuric acid. Right? You'd be stupid. Thou shalt not drink sulfuric acid. Okay, I can keep that one. <laughs> Thou shalt not take a hammer and hit thy thumb. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. Thou shalt not commit adultery or fornicate. Uh. Thou shalt not look, look on a woman lustfully. Uh. Thou shalt not be drunk of wine. Uh. Thou shalt not be angry. In your anger, do not sin. Oh. Well, that's kind of fun. I'm Italian. That's why I get angry. <laughs> no, you're a sinner. That's why you get angry. Right? I'm Irish. That's why I drink. No, you're drunk. That's why you drink. Oh, okay. Okay. Sin is pleasurable for a season. And it's pleasurable by illusion. It promises everything and gives you nothing. How do we know this? Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. I mean, you look at those pictures and, and the images on the internet and whatever's on the movie screen or television and your, your mind is, is just going at it and you're thinking all these things. It, it says in Romans 6, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And, and as the Lord declares this, we as, as his children struggle over that idea that we would, we would feel like we're being cheated by the Lord. And, and Romans 6.23 says, the wages 
what you get paid for. The wages of sin, if you're working for sin and, and, and you've been thinking about it so much, you almost owe it to yourself to engage in it. You've been working so hard to manipulate this thing that you almost feel like, I, I, I deserve it. I just want you to know, the wages of your effort in sin to indulge in that illusion of darkness, the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life comes through light. Letting God's light shine in the darkness of your soul to bring that into the light as he is in the light. Confessing your sins one to another. Holding one another accountable and walking this life of purity. James says, and I love how James puts it, the brother of Jesus. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one, meaning us, is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The illusion, oh, oh. And you just, the curves and women do this thing with their hair. They just know how to do, guys don't do that. They don't do this. Women do. And you're like, oh. Guys are, oh. Oh. And they know how to go, and you're like, oh. It's It's like a moth to a light. Go away from the light. And not, not just men, I can speak on behalf of men. I, I'm sure women could come up with a thousand things that, you know, they get enticed by. And the, and the scripture says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. That's that flesh, that's that darkness, that's that illusion that you think that this darkness is good for you. And they're enticed. And then when the desire is conceived, how does it get conceived? The desire matches the, the temptation. And it conceives in your mind like a sperm and an egg, now it's a zygote. And when it's fully conceived, it gives birth to sin. You now go from the mind to the action. And what do you get when you do the action? It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Death to your marriage, death to your kids, death to your job, death to your reputation, death, 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 and more death. We see the consequences of it, so we look at it and we say, we have two options. Light has come into the world, we can either run to the light or love darkness and deny the truth. So to love darkness and deny the truth means we have to rewrite everything. So we gotta take God out of the equation. So to take God out of the equation, we've really gotta stretch this. He didn't create, there's no creator. We just happen to be here. That's a tough one. I mean, let's take it any direction you want. We're, we're going to go with an old earth, and it's uh, no intelligent design. Uh, it was a massive explosion. Matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Uh, the Big Bang, who started it? It was aliens. Okay, who started the aliens? I'm not sure, but we can go. Well, I'll start wherever you want. Your whole plan, your illusion, has created this, this fantasy of there not being a creator, even though you watch the seasons come and go in an orderly fashion, you watch the rain come in, land on the hills with snow, so then the hot months it melts and comes down and fertilizes and waters your fields so that they grow, and you have crops that are on your table. Where does that come from in the cycle of the oceans and the order and, and birds migrating? And it's all chance, and there's no order. What are you thinking? 
And, and it's, it's almost like I say that and I'm the one who's ridiculed. Like I'm saying the emperor has no clothes. And everyone else is going, oh, but it's, it, 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 evolution is a proven fact. No, it's not. It's contrary to the second law of thermodynamics. We can go through all of it. But we, we have exchanged the truth for a lie, living in an illusion. Why? Because we love the darkness. We love the sin. We don't want to be accountable to a creator. This isn't, this isn't not the intellect. This is the heart. And we hold on to that so it's not sin. It's an affair. It's not, it's not, it's not murder. It's a choice. And so we rewrite everything. And we get to a place where everything's backwards and light comes in. But we love the darkness rather than the light. We love our sin more than we love the truth. We love the God who's come to let us know the truth, that the truth would set us free. And here's, here's the kicker. You're living in an illusion. And I mean, it is a magnificent illusion. But when will we get to the place where we're disillusioned? The enchantment is lifted and the spell is broken. I, I love this because after he finishes with Nicodemus, who is a wealthy man, politically savvy, religiously moral, after he finishes with Nicodemus, Nicodemus is struggling. Jesus is speaking so to Nicodemus' heart that he's pierced to the core and he is struggling with Jesus' words. And he, and he gets to a place where we find later in John chapter 7, he's touched by Jesus' words. He's not ready to step out of the darkness. He's still holding it, but he can't deny that it's pierced his heart, much like a lot of you are hearing these words and it's touching you. So Nicodemus is now in, in this illusion of political powers. He's sitting with the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, and these are the rulers of Israel and the religious elite and the wealthy of the community. And he's got a place of prominence, and he's sitting there, and the, the words from John 3 are echoing in his mind. But now we're in John 7, and he's listening to the power base, and he's the head of all of Israel. And, and the officers come to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they say to them, why have you not brought Jesus? And the officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. They're going, weren't you supposed to arrest him? Where is this, this guy, Jesus? And the Pharisees, and the religious leaders, the political leaders, where's Jesus? And the officers say, no man's ever spoken like him. They're moved by his words. They're drawn to the light. And then the Pharisees answered, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? Who, who in here is, is, is believed in this, this, this joke of creationism? Who's believed in a need for a savior? Which one of you? As the power base is mocking the religiosity and the Christianity of Jesus. And the crowd that does not know the law, this crowd does not know the law is accursed. And Nicodemus said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him or knows what he's doing? Nicodemus, with all he had in him and his fear, still living in an illusion that this power base was important, still living in an illusion that he couldn't let go of what he had, still living in an illusion that Christ couldn't be everything, that the money was important and the power was important and the religious notability was important. He, he subtly speaks, he says, if you could only hear him like I have, I mean, if, if, if he would come in, you'd be somewhat moved like I am. Does, does, does our law judge a man before it hears him? I wish you could just hear him. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word. 
And then, and then, and then you would know what he's doing. That's Nicodemus' big, bold step of faith. And they answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, no prophet has arisen from Galilee. Nicodemus is silent. He's still living in the illusion that the power matters. If I could only be in this seat of influence, I could move the world. Without God, you are moving nothing. You're just marking time. I, I sat before a power base this last week. It was a dais that was seated higher than those that came to speak of the citizenry. They looked down on the citizens. It was the supervisory board of our county. I was asked by Supervisor Foy to come and testify against SB 128. And those of you who don't know, it's the physician-assisted suicide bill before the state. This bill's been put up a hundred times before the California State Senate. Three states have embraced physician-assisted suicide. I know it's a divisive issue in our culture and that people struggle with it, but oh man. Oh no, I brought it. And I spoke and I didn't come up as Pastor Rob McCoy. I didn't come up as city council candidate Rob McCoy. I came up as Rob McCoy. And I spoke before the supervisory board. What they wanted to do is they wanted to take the county lobbyist money to lobby for SB 128 in Sacramento as opposed to using the county's money to lobby for water. (laughs) The most important thing is that our lobbyists are lobbying so that people can have physician-assisted suicide in California. Now, the illusion is that it's loving and compassionate. That's the illusion. There isn't a person in the room who hasn't been with somebody who has suffered in death. We all have a story. I I saw a man with ALS. I saw another person come forward with cancer, all moving and touching stories. My point wasn't that they're in pain. My point was SB 128 makes critically ill patients more vulnerable than they already are. You're you're at a stage in life where you're elderly or you're disabled and you've got people pressing you because they want your estate. You've got a division in your children. They're fighting for it. They're trying to manipulate you. You're weak. I remember Dr. Crilly wouldn't come and speak anymore because she was trying to figure out how she was going to navigate the ramp from the parking lot down to the front door with her walker. And that at 90 something years of age frightened her. Can you imagine being at a deathbed and your kids are pressuring you to make a decision because they're waiting for the estate? I've been at the bedside of hundreds of people who have passed. I've seen it. SB 128 divides family members when they most need one another. I experienced that that last last Thursday. I went to go say goodbye to my dad because my sister said he was dying. I drove all the way down to San Diego. I got there. He was in the hospice room. His roommate had died the night before. When I went in, he's in a fetal position. His lips are stuck to his teeth. He's, He's skin and bones. He's in a fetal position, unresponsive. I kissed him. Told him I loved him, prayed for him. My two sisters were with me. My one atheist sister was saying, we need to give him morphine. We got to put him, he's, he's, he's suffering. My other sister, Nancy, an evangelical Catholic, said, let, let God take his course in dad's life. We got in the car to drive home. The debate continued in the car. All the way home. I get it. 
And my wife arrived late because she had to have a bone scan on her compression fracture and she got there late and Molly came with Oliver and Michael was there. We had a bite to eat at my sister's house and Michelle said, honey, let's go see your dad. I go, I don't want to see him again. I've already said goodbye. I don't want to see him like that. Please. I, a man who has a happy wife has a happy life. So I got in the car and I drove with her and we get down there and, and I'm, I'm in the back of the pack as Molly and Michael and Oliver and Michelle are all walking ahead of me. I don't, I don't want to do it. They turn into the hospice room and I hear them say, he's not in here. And immediately I think he's dead. And one of the nurses say, oh, Captain McCoy's not in there. He's in the dining hall. <laughs> what? Turn around, we go in the dining hall. He's coherent. He's eating. He got to hold my my grandson, his great-grandson, for the very first time. Played with his feet and touched his hands. Put him up. We got a beautiful picture with him. One that Oliver will cherish. You got to see your great-grandpa before he died. He may make it to his 86th birthday this month. Molly was talking to him and he was saying yes continually like he was having a conversation with her and with Michelle too and feeding him chicken noodle soup. He loved every, ate like a horse. Now, if my sister had been right, that would have never have happened. And as I stood before the, the, the supervisory board, this idea of SB 128 gives life or death power to those who will benefit from a patient's death. I shared with them that in Oregon, where they have physician-assisted suicide, that there's two cases of folks that had terminal cancer, that their lives could have been extended had they had chemotherapy treatment that the state-subsidized health care would not provide, but sent them a letter saying, but we will provide physician-assisted suicide. Now you're putting somebody in a place that holds the funds, whether your life is worth it or not. SB 128 breaks down basic bonds of trust and turns healers into killers. Palliative care was there for my mother. Palliative care is dealing with the pain in the course of one's death. We have that. We always have. And in the Netherlands, where they've had uh, physician-assisted suicide for over 30 years, palliative care has almost disappeared. It's too expensive. Why give someone chemotherapy when you can give them 100 secanol pills of barbiturates? Especially when it's our taxpayer dollars. SB 128 does not provide death with dignity. It denies basic human dignity to patients and to those who care for them. I have to tell you, I can't think of a single time I've been by the bedside of somebody who's passing where there hasn't been something significant that's occurred. And as I stood before the board, I said to them, my mother died a noble death. And I said, why are we wasting our county taxpayer dollars to lobby for something that's a state issue anyways? And the palliative nurses spoke in opposition to SB 128. The the, um, ethics chairman of all the county hospitals spoke in opposition to SB 128. Of course, the supervisory board, three of the five voted in favor of it. So now our lobbyist money gets to go to SB 128. And here's here's the travesty. Pastor Brett sent out an email to 70 pastors to join us. Not one did. The room was filled with Senator Pavley's folks that were all in favor of SB 128, and every single person, it seemed, took a, a, a chip shot at, at the church or Christianity. I talked about elder abuse, and I said, this, is, this, this could be a, a, a major issue in elder abuse. I said, if a church can do it, most certainly the government can, because they had used an issue of a church. They didn't listen to any of that. They just... they. They were in the illusion that this was loving. We can't let people suffer. And, and the supervisor, I won't say her name, she stood in front of me and she said, 
There is no nobility in death. Mocking me. And another woman came up and says, I'm not voting for you. I was, but I'm not going to vote for you because you mix church and state in, the, in there. And I said, whoa, 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 time out. I already knew you weren't voting for me because I said nothing about church and state. You're the one who did, and you're the one who attacked me for talking about my mother's death being noble. You're the one who's intolerant. And she said, well, there's too many people on the earth anyways. I went, whoa. But I, I have to tell you something about that woman and about the supervisor and about all of Senator Pavley's folks and everyone who came out. I have a lot of respect for them because they are so committed to the illusion that they were there to defend it. And we who know the light, we're not. And the folks that we're defending are the ones that need it the most. SB 128 is never going to affect my life. My kids won't fight over my estate. There won't be one. But the point is, they were following, they were following their philosophy as warped and, and as it is in its defense. To them, suffering is a barrier that can be removed before you get on the Starship Enterprise and go into nothing. But for those who understand, there is nobility in death. And she said that to me, there's no nobility in death. And, and I, I shared with the, the newspaper reporter, I said, my mother held on in the midst of cancer, suffering through cancer for two people to arrive that she could tell them, I forgive you. My dad. He's suffering. But the beauty of it is Every one of the workers in that home, call him Captain Love. And they say that he's the most loved man in that home. Nobody's visited more than him. And we always tell him, you know why? Because nobody's been more loved by a man than we have by my father. When people are dying, he goes into the room and he lays hands on people who are dying. He's always been selfless. He's holding on to hold his great-grandson's foot. The suffering is mine, not his. And, and my feeling is, let's protect folks like that. I'm not to get in the way of those of you who feel as though you don't want to suffer. But don't allow state-subsidized health care to invade that. I, I, I share this because this idea of an illusion is this concept of compassion. Uh, one last thing. There must be two witnesses to a patient's request for overdose medications for suicide in this bill. One can be an heir, and one can be a representative of a nursing home or a medical care provider. There's no safeguard against any coercion. This person's a commodity, just a number. And the illusion is that there is nobility in death. 
I, I wanted to jump out of my skin. I didn't. A gentle answer turns away wrath. The word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. God told me to hold my tongue. But as I thought about that, I said, no nobility in death. You're here because men died in D-Day on the invasion of Normandy. You're here because people suffered so, so that, that women would have the vote, that, that 650,000 people died on a field of battle, that there would be racial equality. No nobility in death. What about the firemen that rushed into the falling buildings on 9-11? No nobility in death. I was thinking of this kid, Tyler, a fourth grader in East Rochester Elementary School. He didn't have class on Monday. It was a holiday. So he was sleeping over with several other people at his grandfather's trailer in Penfield, a suburb of Rochester. The trailer caught fire about 4.45 in the morning, probably because of an electrical problem, the Penfield Fire Company said later. Tyler went through the trailer and was able to wake six people, including two other kids, ages four and six, who all made it out alive. And, and then Tyler went back in to try to help his uncle Steve Smith, who was in a wheelchair because he had lost part of his leg. Both of them didn't make it out. Tyler was inches from his uncle. There's no nobility in death. Really? The Via Dolorosa. He came to this world to save sinners and paid the penalty for our sin upon the cross so that we could be set free from sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That is the light that has come into the world. But we love our sin and our illusion more than we love the light. And this is where it finds us. We're troubled. People are not willing to let go of whatever dark thing that is. Sin is pleasurable. But we're devoted to darkness. And I think about this idea of the woman at the well in John 4. And I'm going to close with this. The woman at the well in John 4. We're going to study it next week probably. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> it says Jesus needs must be that he go to Samaria. It wasn't even, it was so out of the way. And he leaves the other disciples and he books down to Samaria. He gets there at noon. He's exhausted, the scripture says. He's exhausted. I mean, that's, that's how, de that, I love the depiction. The, the savior of the world is exhausted. He's tired in the work, but not of it. And he sits down at the well and when the, the sun is at its highest peak and this woman comes and they begin to have this conversation. You have nothing to gather water. And he says, you know, the, the water I provide is living water. You'll never thirst again. She says, where do I get this? And he goes through this whole conversation with her. And he, he just goes right to the heart of the matter because the, uh, the, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. He goes right to it. He, he brings a light into the darkness of her soul. And he says, you've been married five times and you're living with a man who's not even your husband. <laughs> he didn't laugh like that. I did. <laughs> and what's amazing as Jesus is physically exhausted and this woman's soul is spiritually exhausted and they meet because God wanted to have a, a meeting with somebody who had been under the illusion that marriage would bring happiness and one man after another. Maybe she had had a father who left her home. Maybe she'd been molested. Maybe, I don't know what led her to five husbands in a culture that you, you, you divorced once you were an anathema, let alone five times. She was the Liz Taylor of her, life, uh, of her lifetime. And here she's living with a man, which is even worse. 
And she's a Samaritan talking to a Jew. I mean, it's so out of context, so bizarre that Jesus had to go to Samaria to sit with this woman at this opportune time because this woman was at the end of herself. She wasn't living under illusion. She was disillusioned. The enchantment was being lifted. All the things that she thought would bring her happiness had ended up death, death in every relationship, death in her family, death in her identity, death in her standing in the community. She had sown to the wind and she had reaped the whirlwind and she was done. She was finished. She was exhausted spiritually. And there God meets her in our weakness. God's strength is made perfect and says to her, I will give you living water and you will never thirst again. There's something in you that just is insatiated and I want to bless you. And she's so touched, she goes into this town in Samaria and, they, and revival occurs. And you contrast her with Nicodemus. Nicodemus still thinks in the illusion that the power and the money and the morality is what's going to save him. And she got to a place where I want everything Jesus has to offer. The light came in and I'm running to it. Here's my life, Lord, you know it all. Take all of me. Confess your sins one to another that you may walk in the light as he is in the light. Lord, here's my life, take it all. And the contrast of those two lives to me. You look in verse 16 of the passage, Jesus contrasts, what Jesus does, he contrasts life and death. Verse 17, condemnation and, and being saved. Verse 18, belief and unbelief. Verse 19, light and darkness. Verse 19 and 20, loving and hating. Verse 21, doing truth and doing evil. And he just looks at all of us and he says, this isn't, this isn't an intellectual issue, this is a moral issue. Do you want to walk in the light? Do you want to have victory? Do you want to have life and life more abundant? Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and life more abundant. He's a God of life. We live in the illusion that death is somehow delivering us. But he came that we might have life, life more abundant. The woman at the well made me think of Natasha today because it was a year ago almost, a little bit, maybe more. She had gone through hell and back before we even had the chance to be in her life. Her aunt was a prostitute. Her grandmother burned the house down. I don't even know what happened to her in the orphanage. Things you probably can't talk about. By 17, she had tried to embrace this understanding of light. She had come into an understanding of Christ and yet the world had this illusion that something out there would ease the pain in her heart, the abandonment of a father and a mother. And she thought, it's got to be out there. This is this, this walking in the light and being honest. She hadn't been raised with honesty. And, and, and there's got to be an answer out there. The illusion that the world was saying, it is, come, come, I, I, we've got it for you. She tried to live in that illusion under the house. And I said, Natasha, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. I can't subsidize you doing this. It's killing you. She says, well, dad, then I'm going to do it on my own. I said, okay, honey. I have a lot of respect for somebody who's going all in. Jesus said, you're either hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. She's, she's, she's going to find out if this illusion is real. I, I'm okay with that. I don't like it. And she packs her car, this white jalopy, and it starts raining, and, and, and I tell her, I go, sweetie, you, owe me, you only owe me one thing as you drive into Oxnard. First of all, I want you to know, people spend their life trying to get out of Oxnard. You're driving into it. But I said to her, you only owe me one thing. 
If you find anything better than Jesus out there, you got to come tell me. This illusion of what was drawing her. She went down and bless her heart. That's a Texas way of saying, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but she, she gave it a good college try. She didn't ask us for a dime. She lived in a hovel down there and, and I'd see pictures of things. I'd be like, oh Lord. Oh, I'd, and, and I'd, Michelle and I'd lay awake at night wondering where she was, which we'd have to give it to the Lord. We'd cast our cares on him. We'd pray for her. We'd intercede. And the beauty of it is, you know, it, it doesn't matter where she is. She's not outside the reach of God, nor is she beyond our prayers. The fervent faithful prayers of a righteous man accomplish great things. I'm not righteous because of what I've done, but because of what Christ has done. And we're praying. And God would give us a peace. We'd go to sleep. And in the midst of it, she calls us. She asked for 1500 bucks on a loan because she couldn't make rent. And I said, sweetie, and this was a tough one. I said, no. And some of you don't like it when God says no. I'm not God, but I'm saying I'm the steward of her life. And God told me to tell her no. I hate that. And, and some of you are in pain right now. And you're wondering where God is. He knows. And, and the pain is revealing areas of your life you never thought were there. And in the pain of that, she broke. And she said, and I told her, I said, I can't give you $1,500, but the house is waiting for you. There's a bed, but the rules still apply. She called and she says, Dad, I, I think I want to do it. I want to move home. Think or you want, yeah, and no, I want to. I said, okay, sweetie. Well, come and your mom and I will sit with you. And as Michelle and I prayed about it, we thought, she left with struggles. Now they've been manifest. She's going to come back with struggles. So we sat down with her and we said, sweetie, you're going to live with us just like you did before. You're going to struggle over the rules of the house. You're going to struggle over all these things. You're going to go right back into the same illusion being drawn to it because at the heart of every issue is an issue of the heart. It's your heart that is the problem. And you've got to give that to the Lord because the house isn't going to save you. It's, it's going to go right back to square one again. She goes, I know. I said, sweetie, why don't you just run to the light? The light has come into the world. Run to the light. Embrace him. Just give it all to him. Remove all the illusions of the world and embrace him with everything you are. She said, Dad, I want that. I said, well, let's go up. We'll go take a look at Teen Challenge. She said, okay. So we drove up there. We get up there. They're singing. The birds are out. And it's a beautiful this spring day. Rosie comes out, greets it. Oh, hi. She goes, I could do this, Dad. I go, yeah, I think we all could. <laughs> and Rosie, Rosie comes out. And she goes, well, you're not going to be here, Natasha. You're going to be in L.A., in Linwood. <laughs> And I drove there, and there were bars on the windows, and it was like, lock the car, hide your value. It was crazy. And, and, uh, and she said, you know what, Dad? I, 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 want, I want all of Jesus in my life. And I got to tell you, I've gotten a couple of phone calls. She gets a call for 15 minutes. Uh, all cell phones are taken. All, I mean, it is a great, she's, she's all in. Some of you are going, well, that's depressive. And I, well, first of all, there's, she's, she's not a prisoner. I had to put bus fare down. She can leave anytime she wants. So don't, don't think I forced her into it. She can leave anytime she wants. She's calling, and I've never heard such joy in my daughter. Michelle's already on the road going to go see her right now. She's no longer under the illusion. She's disenchanted. She's being set free from this spell. Some of you right now have habitual sin. 
You're under the illusion that you need it. You're a liar. Walk in the light. Don't love the sin more than you love the Lord. It's, it's killing you. And it's killing your family. And the only reason you can survive is because you're subsidized by everyone else having to suffer because you won't let death go. Let it go. Go all in. Run to the light. Walk in it. It's not how you walk. It's where you're walking. Walk in the light. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hey, look at that. Four seconds left. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you took the time to explain to Nicodemus so that all of us could have a deep and abiding understanding. Lord, we know that sin is pleasurable for a season, but the end therein is death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The wages of sin is death. But Lord... We ask that you deliver us. We ask, Lord, that you would lift this illusion that somehow we think we need this, but we don't. Lord, we want to trust you. We thank you that you didn't come into the world to condemn the world. We're already condemned. Because we did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you, you declare that the condemnation is that the light has come into the world, but we love, we agape darkness more than light because our deeds are evil. We somehow live in the illusion that we think we need this and we don't. And you come that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. No temptation has seized you, God's word says, but that which is common to man. And when you're being tempted, God will give you a way out. And that way is life. Life to your relationships, your family, your job. Life to your body. Life to your soul. Like the woman at the well, it's time to be disenchanted, disillusioned. Walk away from the lie, the darkness. Let the scales fall and run to the light. For the light has entered the world. Don't love the darkness anymore. Love Jesus. Whatever it takes, all of him in all of you. May God bless you and fill you. Conviction's not bad when it's from the Lord. Give him everything. God loves you more than anyone ever will. And what he has for you is better than all the lies the world promises. And the Lord's heart for you today is light and life. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand.